Bonwa. It's uh, Zachary Wichichi. I'm not popular. You're listening to my monthly solo episode, and I am raging drunk. It's 2.30 a.m., and I just got back from the bar with a bunch of my friends where I had, like, eight beers and half a pack of cigarettes, and now I am staring at the wall, getting ready to podcast at my most Blanche Dubois delusional fantasy moment. Thank you so much for joining me. So happy Halloween, everybody. It is officially Halloween here, and by the time your ears are graced with my beautiful faggot whining, it'll be Halloween for you too. This year, I was planning on really going out with my friends and going to some bar and wearing a costume and getting drunk and maybe throwing up on the street as you do. But all of my friends are, like, busy being professional or are, like, not in the mood to risk their lives to COVID or whatever. At this point, I just don't even think COVID is real, so let's just all put ourselves on the altar on the name of drinking and debauchery. But, yeah... I don't really have plans. I think I'm going to go out with, like, one of my uh, straight boy pals tomorrow. But I don't have a costume because I didn't really think I was going to have Halloween plans. So I left my wig in Nakoya. I was fully prepared to do a uh, cosplay of Asuka from Evangelion, my drag namesake. But I didn't bring the wig. So all I have are the little plug suit things that she puts in her head and like the actual like morph suit that I bought last year and didn't wear last year either so another Halloween COVID there or not I will not be serving the girls um I was also thinking that maybe I would be Erica from the piano teacher and would just wear some ugly skirt and a little (laughs) I don't know backwards styled wig and just poke a little hole in a show with some blood and call it a day but yeah I have no costume now and I guess I'm still drinking tomorrow so gotta figure that out at this point I'm just gonna put the little plug suit antenna things in my hair and wear like a little normal gay boy goes to the bar fit and call it a costume I have like some embarrassing items that could be potentially implemented as costume, but I have already debased myself enough recently that I don't really feel like adding insult to such severe injury. But even if I don't really celebrate with like a costume or something, I am at least pretty pleased that I got to do quite a bit of Halloween stuff on the podcast. Uh, I talked about um, two of my favorite horror movies, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 with one of my good friends, one of my good local friends, John. And I talked about Silent Hill, which is like one of my leading artistic influences, honestly. Basically, ever since I uh, was um, exposed to Silent Hill as a teenager, it's really rested in my gut and... It was uh, really cathartic to get all of that out from under my skin with my friend Natalie. So yeah, 
check out those episodes if you missed them. I think even if you haven't, like, watched the movies or played the games for either of those episodes, like, there's something to be gained, perhaps. But, yeah, I don't know. I did, like, a lot of specific content-focused episodes in October. So in November, I'm hoping to get a little broader. So we're going to do an election episode, of course, on uh, my Wednesday night, which is going to be all of your Tuesday evenings. I'm going to bring back my good friend Miles, who is on the Kanye episode, and we are going to do a live election special. Woohoo. <sighs> I like really can't give more fucks about this election. I am exhausted. I have no more hot takes. I voted for somebody. You're going to have to wait to find out who for. And yeah, I fucking hate all of the media I've had to read about and the nonstop tweets. There's just nothing more productive to be said about this absolutely stupid election cycle. So just kind of holding out until it ends at this point. I did my civic duty, even if the libs are going to be mad about precisely what I did, but too late to be helped now. I sent that fucker in. Yeah, so anyway, we'll be uh, streaming that this coming Wednesday. Get into it. And, um, oh my god, I'm so excited. I have a really special episode planned. If you bought the uh, November issue of the I'm So Popular zine, you know I'm a big faggot for Mishima Yukio. And I have a really special guest coming on to commemorate the 50th anniversary of his death. So I'm not going to reveal who it is quite yet because I'm so stoked. I like don't want to jinx it. But if you're exposed to like post left podcasting or whatever it is the New York Times is IDing us as these days, you'll probably know who he is. Um, a little hint is that he, he probably smells really good, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, if you haven't, like, been exposed to Mishima yet, as I guess a lot of people have, I would recommend, uh, checking out Confessions of a Mask, Kamen no Kokuhaku. It's, like, a very brief read. It's, I think, less than 200 pages or just around there and is... One of the most compelling novels about gayness I've ever read, despite the fact that it was published much before any kind of gay culturalism was solidified in the West. I think that Mishima was sort of preeminently aware of uh, what the gay sensational emotion is, and he put it to text much earlier than any Americans did. I mean... We have, like, some British authors in, like, the 19th century, and, of course, like, the Intuit gay heartbeat. Is it Intuit or Inquit? Girl, I don't fucking know. I'm drinking another beer. It's a miracle. I'm not slurring right now. But, anyway, he has, like, some primordial... What was I saying? Somebody has a primordial handle on gayness. Uh, if it's not Mishima... It's somebody. <laughs> oh, I think I was going to say it was Oscar Wilde or something. Like, lots of authors have uh, touched on that nerve. God, I'm so smart I got there. Yeah, but lots of people have touched on, like, that gay element. But I think Mishima does it more beautifully and with a slicker aesthetic style than uh, 
many of his imitators and writers thereafter have ever been able to accomplish. So it's pretty short. That episode's going to be coming out on the 50th anniversary of his death, exactly on uh, November 25th. So, and if you're not into reading books because you are brain slaughtered by Twitter, you can simply watch the uh, Mishima biopic directed by Paul Schrader called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters that we will also be discussing in the podcast. So, yeah, get into it. I also have a few other episodes planned that I'm just going to kind of leave up in the air for now just in case it doesn't pan out or something. I had a few instances of that back in October. I had like a a few guests I was excited about but couldn't quite work out the schedule. So just wait and see. I mentioned that the November zine is out. It's great. I am really proud of it. The art is like really fucking fierce and there are color issues on Etsy. And like the only other housekeeping thing I have is that I am running an election for the I'm So Popular president. I'm going to announce the winner on my election episode, so please vote for whoever you want. You can write someone in or you can vote for any of the candidates listed, whether it be Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Kanye West or Mishima Yukio. Or you just write someone in. Yeah, whoever you want. I don't care. It's your choice. It's a real election. This uh, Marxist podcast is running a (laughs) democratic poll. So uh, get into it before the revolution ruins your chances at that. This is probably like your only chance to elect, like, I don't know, Sam or Gion from Twink Rev or the Thought Topics boys. Like, I don't care. Anyone's good. Just, uh, yeah, go for it, whoever you want. And, uh, yeah, speaking of uh, those podcasts, there was a bunch of really fucking great episodes on both of them. Um, Thought Topics did an episode with friend of the I'm So Popular universe, River Page. <laughs> yeah, uh, they name-dropped me for the second or maybe third time on Thought Topics, so I'm a star. Also, they really got, like, the actual dialectics of uh, Lana Del Rey quite right. So please go listen to that. And uh, I'm not even sure if this was in October anymore, but I did go on Twink Rev and uh, talked about being a faggot cross-dresser in Japan, and it was a really fun episode. River also went on there. So, yeah, lots of uh, good content around. Please go listen to the boys. Yeah, so I've talked, like, quite enough about horror this month. I have one more movie in store to analyze with all of the truly close and dear friends of the I'm Not Popular listenership, all 14 of you or whatever. Um, But I was asked specifically to get drunk and talk about Beyonce. No one has ever asked me to do that before. I usually just do it on my own. So I am very happy to offer some criticism tonight of the one and only Beyonce Knowles and specifically her album, Lemonade. They don't love you like I love you. Slow down. They don't love you like I love you. Back up. They don't love you like I love you. Step down, they don't love you like I love you. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked.
Thank you to user at Tegalise Tegalise Tegarise. I don't know. Sorry, girl. But yeah, uh, <laughs> Little Miss Thing suggested I talk about Beyonce on the podcast. And as it turns out, I actually have a lot of things to say. Um, and maybe you're thinking, this isn't relevant to anything at all. And you are so right. There is simply no reason to talk about Beyonce right now, except that I want to. And I did also see a vaguely viral tweet this week that was comparing the sixth albums of a lot of pop stars, which uh, included, God, I don't know, Madonna with Bedtime Stories and a Mariah Carey album. My boyfriend will sue me, but I do not know what her sixth album is. And, um, yeah, something else. And, and it was asking people to decide what album they would eliminate. And I saw a lot of responses saying they would eliminate bedtime stories, which is visceral to my homosexual nerve. It's violent. And it's wrong. Because the correct album to eliminate from that is Beyonce's Lemonade. And this is why I think that. Um, to be honest, I was actually pretty into this record when it first came out. And I wouldn't describe myself as a Beyonce stan, but I have a very deep and serious respect for her early catalog. I think that B-Day is one of the most special and exciting pop albums of this century or last, or I don't fucking care, the 19th century. Like, no one really did... Go for broke, like delicious pop music, like Beyonce did on that record. And um, even though I think she's had some misses, I think um, I am Sasa Fierce or whatever is like kind of a bore and ridiculous. And uh, I, I don't know. Four, I think she has a very practiced image, and it leads to a lot of self seriousness kind of after she broke through the mold and became like a really major sensation that leads to a cult of pop star that I do not find especially intriguing. Um, It takes a lot of ingenuity to create an image wherein you are both vaguely mysterious and human and appealing and interesting. And Beyonce has several of those elements right. I mean... She has, like, the intrigue. Like, I'm curious about what she's up to, for sure. I would love to know, like, what workers she has making her Ivy Park clothes for two cents a dollar. Uh, (laughs) And I'm very curious about, like, her drama with her husband and everything, obviously. But, um, I don't know. I just think it leads to a, a general pop mode in which I don't find her especially emotive or I don't know like personable and I talked with Ronald about this on my episode about J-pop and standing and I said I, I really respect musicians who do not have an immediate connection with their fans and actually kind of cultivate a distance to, between them and uh, the artist and Beyonce has definitely been doing that her whole career and I appreciate it 
And I think it leads to, like, a better gay-standing culture, if you will. But I don't really know sometimes if she supplies enough artistic integrity or image in the rest of her music to really justify that intrigue. And when you look at a lot of other pop stars in this role, I think you'll find that they have a lot of compelling narrative backing them. But Beyonce didn't really have that thread. And she started really going for the target of making one when she released her self-titled Beyonce album, which is an album that I think is pretty sensational. I think it's a lot of like fun music. There are songs that I still love to hear at parties. And the visual album is interesting. It's like well-directed and very clean. And I think it was a pretty major moment in the way that pop music is released in her um, unannounced drop, which was, of course, you know, emulated across the board. However, it has led to something I think is pretty terrible, which is like um, what I call post-Lemonade Beyonce. And... This is her kind of realizing the capital success that she hinted at with um, putting the word feminist behind her as she performed and quoting, you know, fucking TED Talks in her music. Beyonce realized that utilizing the aesthetics of uh, ID poll activism was not only something that would get her headlines in The Guardian, but was also something that could you know, put a narrative in place for her when she didn't really have one except, like, her happy marriage and children with her husband. So this kind of leads into the climate for Lemonade to be released, which is another visual album and also dropped in a way that was kind of unexpected. It had, like, some HBO premiere or something. And this is a record that is centered around the marital discontent she has with Jay-Z. God. Who asked? Like, I said earlier that I have, like, an interest in, uh, their marriage, I guess. But, like, I don't want, like, an aestheticized version of it. I want, like, the boiled-down, gritty, disgusting TMZ report of it. Putting it into an art form makes it classless and uninteresting. And this entire album is, um, on retrospect, a lot of peddling in that mode. There's a lot of broad songwriting across this album that talks about her role as a black woman in pop music, right? And I guess some of it is interesting and important, but... None of it is actually, like, truly political. Like, just simply referencing the Black Panthers in a Super Bowl performance is not actually making a statement. It's very repulsively postmodern in the way that it acknowledges something else that happened and then ties itself to it, but then does not utilize it or catalyze it in any way to say something new or to inform us about the artist. It is simply a point of reference in which, because you understand Black Panthers or you understand Black identity or activism, you can immediately aesthetically link Beyonce with it just because she referenced it herself. 
and then buy her album on iTunes or stream it on Tidal. And that's kind of my main problem with the record, is that there is a lot of overexposure in that mode of peddling yourself out to, you know, activist imagery when, in fact, you are not really doing anything for it at all. Like, simply being a uh, famous celebrity who is of a marginalized group doesn't really improve the material gains or means of anyone. And, of course, there's lots of people who make the argument that, oh, well, like, I see myself represented. Like, that's empowering for me. And, okay, I'm not saying you can't be, like, empowered by seeing, like, people of your community represented and famous and doing it unabashedly. Like, go go for it. You know, be happy about that. But I will hold you to the question of, is it actually doing anything interesting on an artistic level at all? And I find that Lemonade is not. I re-listened to this album recently and found that a lot of the music is, um, lacking. It's lacking. I would say that, like, Pray You Catch Me and, uh, Hold Up and, you know, Formation are, like, fun, interesting, dramatic songs in which she kind of boils down this narrative of uh, her husband's infidelity to a broader and more sort of camp mode of operation. But then when she is dealing with it more specifically or in like the visual album component of this, it's more specific or at least it's like pointing to more specific references of black poets or of other similarly like ID representative artists. And in the same way, it's not like really making a point of it at all, except that, oh, that happened. Here I am. My husband cheated on me. Isn't that awful? But I'm going to get over it because I'm an empowered victim. Like my husband victimized me by cheating on me with Becky with the good hair. And now I'm going to create a highly commercialized, very impersonal album. And Beyonce received a lot of praise on this record for being more, quote, personal, unquote. But I find if you actually, like, look at any of the lyrics on the record, they don't really hold up to any serious kind of personal reflection or mission of statement. I think of Sandcastles, which is almost iconic for how soapy it is. It's extremely dramatic, but when the rest of the album is taking itself very deeply seriously, when you kind of look at this, um, I don't know, it's just, like, kind of embarrassing. And then she, like, forces her kids into this as well when she, like, puts them in the music videos or in the visual album. And I'm just imagining if, like, my parents, like, grew me up, like, they raised me, and then 15 years later when I'm 18... And I go and, like, look back at my parents' art. And I'm like, oh, my God, they put me in their album about, like, their infidelity with each other. Like, is that not, like, kind of inappropriate? I don't know. Maybe not. And I guess someone could, like, point the gun at me and say, like, well, you don't think it's inappropriate when Kanye West does it? And, like, no, I do think it's inappropriate. But I would say that Kanye does it in a way that has a sharper aesthetic edge 
The music is more adventurous, and I find it deeply more listenable. Sue me. And the worst part of um, the post-Lemonade Beyoncé is that it led into a fucking trio of albums in this same mode where we got this and the Jay-Z record, which I think is very hokey-pokey artichokey. Jay-Z, like, can't rap anymore. Like, Kanye can't either, but at least he's, like, a good producer. But, like, Jay-Z, like, can't rap anymore. And so he has to do, like, this, like, really cringe, surface-level lyricism that I find kind of challenging to listen to. And it all ends in Everything is Love, an album about their reconciliation and how rich they are, which uh, they're very lucky that it came out, like, what, two years before, two or three years before now? Because revisiting that, gloating about all of your money is uh, not that interesting. And once again, I will pander to the opinion that, oh, well, it's important for black artists to show their success and the way they make money. And yeah, sure, like, I agree. I think it's important for, in a capitalist world, for musicians and artists from marginalized communities to show that they can be successful. Like, okay, sure. But have uh, black artists, like, not been doing this for 30 years? Like, is this, like, not the point of, like, NWA or, like, fucking any, like, rap group since then? Like, this is ground that's been covered. And just because Beyonce did it and, you know, she's a pop girl, does, like, not make it any more explicitly interesting And don't even get me started on her releasing a fucking movie on Disney+. Plus. I just find a really sinister element in Beyoncé's woke era where she panders to a lot of uh, this value of oppression and then she sells it to Disney. Like, girl, get your bag. Okay, I don't hate you. But I do kind of hate the idea that it's radical or productive. So that's a hot fucking take. And someone can clip this out and cancel me and call me racist for saying that Beyonce is not as woke as you think. Sorry. Bedtime stories is more woke. (laughs) Like, no offense, but Beyonce has never done anything as scandalous as Madonna's erotica era. And when Madonna, like, questioned a lot of ideas about sexuality in the post-AIDS era and put her body on display along with those of gay men and showed them in a uh, aesthetic image that is very complicated and compassionate and it does not villainize the homosexuals at all and she chose to do that not only with her music but like in the print form and she almost lost her career so when she goes back and refuses to apologize for it on human nature like that's major it's major beyonce like faux crying about her potentially fictional husband's divorce like not divorce this is what happens when you drink too many beers and you're talking to a wall when beyonce makes an album about her husband's potentially fictional infidelity. Like, who even knows if this happened? Who cares? It just doesn't mean anything. Um, I don't know. People are suspecting that she's going to have a new album out next year, and I hope she does. I, I mean, I do find, like, the cultural panic around her to be pretty interesting, and I will always listen to what she's doing, but I'm not always going to think it's that good. 
So let's talk about a more radical piece of art, shall we? Now all I want to know is how to go. I've tasted blood and I want more. I'll put up no resistance. I want to stay the distance. I've got an ish to scratch. I need assistance. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. That was from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, starring Tim Curry and Susan Sarandon, of course. And I think any homosexual, period, is exposed to this movie, and, you know, a very large percentage of straight people, too. Rocky Horror is one of the, like, few glimmering pieces of homosexual art that I think is pretty radical in its uh, own expression, but has transcended, like, the realm of gay niche and has like summited to the point that most people are at least vaguely aware of it if they haven't been to a screening themselves or haven't seen it or haven't heard the music like I think that most people are still at least tangentially cognizant of its existence and usually with gay art I find that that can be an indicator of inauthenticity or of like very boring gay politics like Call Me By Your Name, a movie that peddles in gay imagery but is expressly made for the whims of straight people and, in fact, expresses no homosexual emotions at all. So I think it's pretty major that Rocky Horror, a movie made in the 70s on a shoestring budget, was able to trespass into the heterosexual realm and leave a lasting cultural influence. I watched this movie again with some friends, and, of course, there's no screenings really of it in Japan. I'm sure, like, there's some in Tokyo or something, but, like, in my Inaka neck of the woods, there's, like, that's not going to happen. So I had a friend who loves horror movies, John, of course, who was on the podcast. We watched it together with a few friends who had never seen it before, and uh, we did, like, some of the traditions that they do at a lot of the shows with the newspaper and the water guns and calling Janet a salad and throwing rice and all of that. It was it was like a cute little time. But it kind of made me revisit the like thematic intentions of that movie. I think that Rocky Horror is like very explicitly a movie about having to confront like homosexual reality in the universal straight world that we all exist in. It casts uh, Brad and Janet as a uh, kind of likable, kindly set of straighties who are then brought into this literally alien world of faggots and cross-dressers, homosexuals, and bodybuilders, um, and then slowly shows them, like, the delight and horror of it in equal measure— And I think this movie generates a lot of empathy in a way that I don't think is, like, pandering or, like, I don't know. There's a lot of content trying to create empathy and relation for straight people to gaze that is so shallow and unconvincing. Or on the other end of the spectrum, it's just, like, radical trans people and homosexuals on Twitter who are, like, screaming at you about whatever. And I think it's much less effective than the way this movie approaches the matter, which is that it demonstrates the homosexual reality 
in all of its gory disaster. It shows Frankenfurter, as played by Tim Curry, in a lens that is not always flattering, if not always can't be. It literally shows him slaughtering and murdering. It shows him weeping over the fact that he can't accomplish his dreams and shows him at a aesthetic level of complete failure and upset and drama. And it never really goes out of its way to decry him. It never makes him into a monster. It just kind of like shows this absurdist like gay caricature, like this cross-dressing caricature as um, something that's, like, interesting and human in its own right. And it does it with such, like, compelling, like, gay sensibility that I think that it's sort of impossible not to, like, get with the picture after you watch it. And, of course, like, Rocky Horror is, like, kind of adopted by a lot of uh, these, like, rad libs who are obsessed with ID poll bullshit and... They uh, have kind of turned it into one of these like Tumblr moments as well. But I think that even with that being true, this movie is like fascinating in its portrayal of the homosexual universe. Not to mention, it's like a really funny movie on its own. I think that it's um actually like quite compellingly shot. There's like a lot of interesting handheld stuff showing Frankenfurter and his most dramatic moments of disappointment and fury that um, actually catalyzed the emotion in a way that I find pretty brilliant. Not to mention that amazing final scene um, by the pool when these three people are literally forced to enact gay fantasy. And it's so well designed and convincing that even if you're like kind of just approaching the movie as it is and ignoring the context, I, I think it's pretty difficult not to get a kick out of it. I showed this to my faggot boyfriend last year during a typhoon, and of course we didn't like do any of like the stuff associated with it. I don't even think I told him about like the whole universe that revolves around this movie and the midnight showings and stuff, but it was very cute watching him watch it and uh, laugh along with like the stuff that's funny and kind of like get into the numbers. The music is pretty great and I don't know. I have like a fondness for Rocky Horror. I think it does something really well, which is it displays gay people being angry, messy faggots and uh, doesn't condemn them for it, but instead like just demonstrates it and makes like a kind of beautiful, convincing point about it. So... I don't know, I'm kind of gushing about this movie, but I, I really do love it. It holds a special place in my heart. And, um, yeah, it's been eaten up. It's been on Glee. They even put it on Fox with, like, Laverne Cox. Do not know why you would cast a trans woman in that role. It's a little spooky to me. It seems a little off base with the intention of the film. But, hey, more roles for the trans girls by all means, I guess whatever. But yeah, all of that aside, I think this movie is a really convincing, campy, delicious little nightmare. And uh, every single time I've seen it in my adult life after I was kind of into it in high school has just only proved that more truly. Touch a touch a touch me. I want to be dirty. There was just literally someone outside my window. I'm like looking out the outside of the curtains and there's just like someone wandering around the street it's like quite literally 3 30 a.m and this person is just 
on a stroll? Hello? I'm gonna go check if my door is locked. Jesus. Okay, the door is locked. Um, I'm gonna move on to the next kind of topic I have here, which is uh, what I was listening to and reading this month. I think I'm actually going to be able to keep this to be a pretty short episode, which has been my goal from the start of I'm Not Popular, and this is the time I'm going to finally achieve it. <clears throat> Very drunk, girls. I have, like, one eye open as I'm just staring into the void of the mic, the black hole. Um, Yeah, I read a lot <laughs> this month. I read... um. Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, which is a kind of a sensation like 16 years ago for the first time. And I've liked a bunch of his books. I thought this one was okay, and I have really nothing else to say about it. I read a Mishima book that I will hold off on commenting about. Um, I read Caliban and the Witch. It's like a Marxist text about the, the witch persecutions in Europe and like the foundation of capital gain on the women's body and Although I find it reads a little bit too close to anarchism than I would prefer. I think it's a pretty illuminating little book. But what I really want to talk about is the uh, Thomas Hardy novel I read. And and that book was Jude the Obscure. Um, basically at the very tail end of the 19th century. It was like, what, like 1892 or something? 1895? I don't know. It was his last book he published, and I read a lot of Hardy, like, his poems and some, like, snippets of his books when I was an English major, but I kind of have been revisiting him more as I became obsessed with D.H. Lawrence last year and finding out that Hardy was clearly a major influence on him. So last year I read Far From the Madden Crowd, and I thought it was uh, (laughs) pretty trite, honestly. I thought that the England depicted in the book was fabulously boring. And even though, like, Bathsheba is, like, a cool character and I liked her emotional journey or whatever, I thought that, like, for, like, a 450-page book, it was exhausting. And it didn't have much serious to say except kind of contextually about, like, the ache of modernity or whatever. Um, but I was kind of interested to get back into Hardy because I, I really do appreciate him on, like, the level of the text. And I think he's a beautiful writer. He is really amazing at describing a setting. And this book, Jude the Obscure, takes basically everything I've liked about his poetry and from uh, Far From the Madding Crowd and points it to a really furious theme of the worker struggle It's about a young man trying to climb his way out of the lower class, if you will, by becoming an academic, and he slowly sheds his reading to a variety of women who wreck his life. And there's a really great argument uh, in this book for the chaos and disorder of women and what it means to experience or live that. And I think that the character of Sue, uh, Jude, the eponymous character, his his second wife, I think that she is one of the first, like, fully realized women of complicated desire in, like, this bachelorette mode. And the book is very readable from a Marxist point of view as well as we see these superstructures, like, shifting into place 
trapping their victims and then slowly torturing them for a lifetime until it ends in misery, death, and sickness. And this book has no solution. It offers no way out of like this uh, nightmare we've created, even though it suggests a few. Sue is like really into paganism and she loves the Greek gods and what have you. And there's like an underlying sexual element that these characters keep trying to flee to, but their obsessions with love and their obsession with sex, none of it ever leads to anything that can get them out of the blossoming capitalist nightmare that they're inhabiting. And the book ends in complete disgust and tragedy. And that's just how it is. And usually um, I find that that kind of writing is unproductive. I read A Little Life by Hana Yanigahara or something. I hated it. I read that this year and I found that it just shows a very victim-oriented depiction of depression and PTSD that goes nowhere provides nothing for no one and just satirizes faggots on the way in a way that makes uh, no thematic sense. It's very trite. And this book um, also doesn't offer any solutions, but I think it's significantly more radical for the fact that it came out when it did, which is like during the major turn of the Industrial Revolution and showing these proletariat at the absolute trauma and pain that they really go through in a way that is human and complicated because Jude and his wife Sue and even his first wife Arabella who is like the real monster of the novel all of them have fully realized and empathetic motivations so you know moving even on away from the thematic content of this book I found that the writing is some of the most like beautiful like I don't know 19th century English lit I've ever read The way that Hardy describes the turmoil of these characters is um, pretty much unparalleled to this day. And the further we get into these very jaded first-person kind of confessional novels like Otessa Moshveg or Sally Rooney, who I I honestly, I, I like both of them, but their kind of style of writing, the deeper we get into that, like the less we have these valuable broke statements about feeling in the third person that I really value. So yeah, Jude the Obscure was a really special reading experience for me. And um, even though it would probably seem quite tame to anyone reading it now, it will still rip you apart just in the way that Hardy speaks to you. So highly recommended. And Zach Luigi Jesus five stars. Check it out. And in terms of music, before I can finally go to bed, um, Ben Hopkins of Power Bottom released his debut album. And Ben Hopkins was canceled severely for um, a Facebook accusation of some vague sexual upset, basically. Somebody who had no name listed, it was like all through a second source, like said that Ben Hopkins did this and that to them. And Power Bottom had their record deal stripped from them and they music taken off of streaming services. Um, I think it was Polydor that was selling their music. They stopped 
um, selling their records and offering them and wiped them off the face of the earth and basically ended the career of like these two like um, LGBTQ people in a matter of days. And, uh, God, I feel bad getting into the waters of the Me Too movement right now. Um, But I do really believe that if someone is going to make an accusation about something so severe, and it's going to be taken seriously by the public and someone's employers, that it should not be done anonymously. I cannot make a uh, supposition (laughs) on if Ben Hopkins did anything or not, except that I met them and interviewed them and found them to be a very intelligent, well-spoken person, which can be true of, you know, however many evil people in the world. But I did find the context surrounding their cancellation to be pretty fucking evil. So I'm very happy to hear their new album, which kind of addresses some of these themes, along with personal turmoil, just the difficulty of paying your taxes buying groceries and being alive in a uh, mode of music that reminds me a lot of Hole's early stuff. So yeah, check it out if that's kind of your style of music. I think Ben Hopkins is great, and they also have a new podcast about uh, creativity and stuff that I thought was pretty cute. So yeah, good good for them. Keep it up, diva. And also the new One of Tricks Point Never album is out. I'm not going to talk about the Ariana Grande album because I listened to half of it and got bored, but I did buy the new One of Tricks Point Never album on vinyl and listened to it today. I will be listening to a lot more of it. I think it is stunning. It's a lot of um, his replica-era music matched with the stuff he was doing on Age Of, his most recent album. So it's a lot of material, old, like dusty sounds that are paired with an aggressive and confrontational voice. So I'm really digging the album. I love it. I can't wait to keep listening to it, and uh, you should listen to it too. I don't have really anything at all to say about the Ariana Grande album. I like will have to try to listen to all of it again because I'm sure someone is going to want my opinion eventually. Anyway... Thanks for listening to another episode of I'm Not Popular. Another episode of I'm So Drunk. I'm, like, literally dizzy. I could collapse on my mic at any moment. I hope my mom did not listen to this this album. Oh, God. Ja. (laughs) Ja, mata ne. (laughs) 